The term troll has come to be a catch-all for any person on the web who annoys you. You encounter trolls in comment sections, on Twitter, on Facebook, basically anywhere online. They're the people who get under your skin, who just harass you for no reason. Trolls were, and still are, seemingly drawn like a magnet to the B-board of 4chan, a discussion forum that blew up in the mid-2000s. B was an open thread of randomness, completely uncensored, completely anonymous, and completely temporal. Posts are engineered to expire regularly, so content is always fresh, and more importantly, incriminating content can never be retrieved. In 2008, the B board would draw over 200,000 posts per day, and the content is wildly unpredictable, but almost always well beyond the definition of subversive. Shocking, illegal, pornographic, bigoted, and randomly violent are probably the more objectively appropriate terms to use. To give you just one example of the kind of content you might see, the B-Board just made headlines for a discussion in which an anonymous member was compelled to cut off his own toe by other anonymous users. To the board, things like this are the entire goal of trolling, to do awful things for the lulls, simply for the thrill of doing something shocking, and usually with a more outward focus. Trolls will pick a victim whose own sincerity or obliviousness paints a target on their back and bombard them with an arsenal of abuse, everything from pummeling them with sensational memes to prank ordering pizzas to their house or place of business, to identity theft and hacking, to intensely abusive messaging. Today's guest, Whitney Phillips, has studied troll culture. As a trained ethnographer, she embedded for several years with the trolls of 4chan and Facebook, a project that culminated in a book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture. But she has paid attention to how trolling has changed and how, with the incredible growth in the adoption of online social spaces, as well as their structures, the entire way we have conversations online has exploded. For this week's show, we talked about the evolution of the troll and how we can engineer a more inclusive web. Now, what happened while I was doing this research, and it took me a while to really wrap my head around this, is that trolling, subcultural trolling proved to be so successful that, first of all, it generated crazy interest in memes, internet memes. Most of the internet memes that we know and roll our eyes at these days had their origins in a very, very aggressive troll space. But trolls were also really successful in the sense that they were so good at harnessing sensationalist media that they were showing up more and more frequently in media stories. And up until about 2010, 2011, in my work, typically these behaviors were described as cyberbullying, which really did not get to the heart of what was going on. But after this point, as trolls became more and more prominent, more and more journalists were using the word troll to describe these subcultural behaviors, but then also slowly more and more behaviors that were just problematic. And so in 2015, the word trolling, when people use it in the media, can mean just about everything. The one thing that it typically does not refer to now is the subcultural variety. There there are a lot of dynamics going on here, it sounds like. It makes me think of, until very recently, how within gaming culture, on the message boards, when people play massive multiplayer online role-playing games, there is extremely violent speech, extremely hateful speech, that typically when you when you call somebody on it, it uh, their response is, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, I'm not homophobic. This is just our language. This is just the way we talk. And that's an interesting response. And you see this actually in other social networks. And that's why trolling 
as a behavioral catch-all is really problematic. You don't get to use that as an excuse. People need to take responsibility for the impact their actions have that gives people that very easy rhetorical out of saying, I don't have to take responsibility for the words that I say. In my heart, I know that I'm not a racist. So I, as a white person, can use the N-word and you can't tell me that that's actually offensive because I don't really mean it. And, and I'm not saying that people who engage in problematic language and behavior, I'm not calling them, I'm not saying that they're bad people necessarily, but they're coming from a place of profound privilege, that that is profound privilege to be able to say, no, no, I get to say what my words mean. You, if you misinterpret my meaning, that's on you. You're being oversensitive. You're the one that has the problem. I'm fine. But why is that conversation not flipped? Why is the onus not on the speaker? And I think that, especially in the United States, you know, and, and around issues of free speech, the onus is so frequently put on the person being offended. So I think that there needs to be a rhetorical flip in terms of who's responsible for what. How did these social spaces online evolve to become such so much echo chambers to be be places where this type of speech is allowed to kind of flourish and and not challenged and then suddenly be exposed and challenged as it is more recently yeah i mean so a lot of the very early theory about online spaces really focused on and celebrated the fact that quote there were no bodies on the internet right that it was just a space for minds to meet and, you know, connect. And so there was this, this repudiation of embodied experience. There's online versus offline that we internet users don't have to think about race and gender and class is really born of the fact that the early internet in particular was raced and gendered and classed in very specific ways. This is privileged white men, typically, who also happen to be the demographic who haven't had to think very much about race and gender and class. And so people, you know, members of historically underrepresented populations have always had to think about that, have always had to worry about that. So their experiences online are going to be a little bit different. And that, that's something I think that's really important to acknowledge is the, the early web was such a small population. And what we view as not a lot of problems happening back then was something maybe simply because there were so many people with so many things in common they're part of one big discussion. And now we've scaled to the point where we're bringing in and bringing in so many new voices and platforms are interacting and people who would never have encountered each other in real life are now actually being forced to have conversations with one another. Exactly. And, and it also, I mean, it also circles back in direct and indirect ways to conversations around free speech online, that that was another early tenet of the early web. A lot of the problems that we're facing are born of the fact that when people talk about free speech online, they're actually talking about a very weak understanding, a weak version of, of free speech, that free speech, the spirit of free speech. Ideally, you know, you want to have the most speech possible, right? Like a net gain of speech. That's what, that's what we want. The problem with the way that a lot of conversations around free speech tend to go online is that they privilege the aggressor's speech. They privilege the person who's being terrible. It privileges the people who are silencing others. So this very limited sense of free speech is actually, ironically, counter to the very notion of free speech. There's a dichotomy that gets thrown up in the exact example that you, you kind of highlight just now. It's either like quashing all the speech and shutting down the Reddit boards that have bigoted language 
or letting those all, all the Reddit boards that people want to open up anything any bigot bigoted language allowed on the platform so that we can then deal with it. Yeah, what's your response to that? The question that I have in response to that, and I thought about this a lot, is why is it that in order for something positive to happen, particularly, you know, these historically underrepresented populations, women and queer people and people of color have to deal with something terrible first? That, that, that again, it's sort of like, you know, these, the aggressors, they get to set they get to set the tone on everything and then everybody else just has to be reactive. And I don't think that you're wrong. I don't disagree with you at all. I think that, you know, knowing what we're up against means that we will be in a better position to deal with it, but at what cost? And then you think about who has to disproportionately bear that cost. I, I guess my, my question is that why does everything always have to be framed in terms of the aggressor? I, I think that rhetorically it could be, it could be, and and should be otherwise. And, and also to that point, I would actually argue that the biggest problem with sexism and bigotry generally online is not actually the really conspicuous outcrops of it. Those are the really obvious problematic spaces, right? Like the, the boards that were just banned on Reddit, those are beyond the pale. Any reasonable person would look at that and say, okay, that's a problem. We can't have that. But where these issues actually become more clouded and more insidious is more everyday commonplace expressions of sexism and racism and homophobia, stuff that isn't bad enough to trigger a collective response, but is something that historically underrepresented populations have had to normalize as part of their everyday online experience. Uh, yeah, and as you're saying, it kind of moves the bar uh, pretty far in the extreme direction to mm. allow that speech to exist. People who engage in less aggressive, maybe, or less overtly aggressive speech can point to that and say, well, you know, like, I'm, I'm not one of those guys. Right, no, exactly. <laughs> it allows you to have a very small conversation where actually we should be having very big conversations, not just pointing our finger at the bad guy and saying, well, I'm not like them. They're different, they're other. You know, how do we, how do we, be, how do we be good to each other? Those are the hard questions. And those are also the questions that have the most difficult, diffuse, nebulous answers, if you could even call them answers. There's a story that the author Lindy West tells about confronting one of her trolls. She's obviously a very public and engaging person, so she experiences a, a large share of trolling responses to her work. And one person responded to her uh, by setting up a fake Twitter account for her father who has passed away. And she finally tracked down this this person and they came to a place where the troll understood what he was doing and how it affected her. And also people who observed this story understood where the troll was coming from and what had happened to in his life that created this monster, essentially. And I, I wonder if there's any stories or things in your experience with the trolling subculture where you saw just reform occur or where where trolling lost its, its appeal over time or people realized the speech they engaged in uh, was harming other people? Yeah, I mean, so one of the ways that I describe lulls in the trolling world, so lulls is a particular kind of antagonistic humor indicating that you have inflicted strong emotional distress on your, on your target. So you laugh because somebody else is upset. And so the way that I talk about that, the way that I, I came to understand it is that it's very similar to the commodity fetish of all strange connections to draw. But so 
the way that Marx describes the commodity, that, that capitalism, it's magic. That what it does is it, is it obscures the labor conditions and systems of power that result in an object that you buy at the store. And lulls operate in kind of the same way that what trolls are actually engaging with, it's the tiny little sliver at the end that to the troll is amusing, right? So they laugh at tragedy. They're not thinking about, they're not engaging with the larger human narrative. They're not thinking about the holistic people who have experienced this traumatic event and who are now dealing with it. That they're in this position of privilege to where they are able to narrow their sight to just the exploitable comedic details. Everything else is obscured. That's the magic of trolling. And if you take that filter away, then suddenly they snap back to having a more traditional, typical human response to something. I saw that in a number of different cases, enough for me to feel comfortable talking about the lulz fetish as a kind of mask that the troll can take on and off at his or her whim. There's lots of talk about methods of engaging, battling the speech that takes place in toxic spaces or toxic speech. And in lots of cases, there's things like the the Reddit and Facebook and Twitter have been doing. I wonder if there are other kinds of approaches to countering speech that you've seen to be successful or to help reform trolls even. Yeah, I mean, there are, I think that each platform is going to be a little bit different. Their communities are a little bit different. Those are important conversations to have. What are the things? What are the actual verbs that we can do? But I also think that, you know, a really big part of the conversation should be discursive. How do we change the way we talk about some of these issues? Because talk is often the first step towards actual change. So there are three areas where where I feel like you know, discourse could shift and as a result, behavior could shift. And the first is at the platform level. It seems like a fairly simple, like who wants to be on the side of aggressors? But, you know, we've seen in, in the case of Reddit, implicitly they have taken the aggressor's side. They, that's, that's what they've chosen to do. That's why they're in trouble right now. And from there, then you can start, you know, thinking about, well, are there word filtering options? Can we do some sort of algorithmic something, something? Can we hire more moderators? Do we, how do we deal with commentary on site? You know, that there are then sort of practical logistic questions that you can ask. The second place where discourse is important and where the discourse can, and I think should shift, is in conversations around free speech. And then the third place where discourse can shift is just in how we, how we interact with each other. Any kind of response to problematic behavior that contains a whiff of victim blaming needs to stop. And the most obvious example of this, the, the most commonplace example, is the phrase, don't feed the trolls. I, you know, that, that if someone is being terrible online, what you do is you don't engage. And, and the often unstated, you know, the unstated part of that conversation is, if you do engage, it's your fault. And that's the kind of sort of pervasive cultural shift that I would really like to see. Of course, that's, a, that's more difficult. Those solutions are not simple. You're not flipping a switch. It's not as simple as building a better algorithm, right? This is about thinking about how we fit into these conversations, what we as individuals can do. I'm very interested to know what your thoughts are on platform design. If it's true that right now we're at this interesting nexus or this this scaling of the internet where voices from very different experiences and backgrounds are suddenly being thrust together on multiple platforms. Is there something that we can do with platform design or conversation design that 
can improve engagement or bring people together in a way that reduces the unproductive conflict? It comes back to this idea of whose speech do you privilege? How do you, you know, when you're making your design decisions, who are you trying to accommodate? And, and that question is the root question for every other logistic question that comes after. Because there are different ways that you can design spaces to be conducive to certain kinds of community formation. It's different on every platform. Things are designed in different ways. The technological affordances are different, all of that. The number one first question that platforms need to ask is, who are we trying to reach? And who are we going to privilege? Who, who do we want to be here? How do we want to make this a meaningful experience for them? And everything stems from that, right? So, so if a platform decides that what they want is open, productive, respectful conversation, which doesn't mean that people always agree or get along all the time. I mean, there can be contentiousness that's respectful. But if that's the decision that they make, well, then figure out a way to make it so that the really disruptive element does not overtake every other conversation. Would we lose something valuable if the internet went the direction of greater fracturing, where we have social networks that are created with the express purpose of engaging a very targeted population versus trying to bring a lot of different people together using the same platform? I mean, it's... It that's a really hard question to, to answer. But I do think that, you know, certain small communities are good, big communities are good, all different kinds of communities are good. We have that in embodied spaces. We've got close-knit groups and some broader groups, and, you know, we navigate different groups at different times. I think generally the more opportunity that people, particularly people from historically underrepresented populations, the more opportunity they have to speak their mind freely in a safe environment is better for everybody because then that shifts the perspective from being just this homogenous, you know, homogenous experience to a diverse experience. That's, that's the goal and that's good. And how we actually achieve that, I don't think anybody has that answer. I certainly don't. It, it does seem like there's this, this real shakeup of rules, uh, rules for conversations, unspoken rules for conversations that it, it's, it's really hard to get past. There's no conversation on the darker side of Reddit about creating a safe space. That's just seems like completely yeah, out of the yeah, vocabulary. It's, it's a conversation about creating a safe space for them. How are we, how are we going to be able to say the awful stuff that we want to say? Although it's probably not framed as awful, but how do we get to express ourselves authentically? And this isn't fair and free speech. What about us? Where's our history month? Like, like that, I think that that, that conversation does, does unfold in, in spaces, even where people are being terrible to each other and to others. Everybody just wants a place where they can feel accepted for who they are. It's just that some people are doing disgusting things that shouldn't be tolerated. And making the internet a less safe space for a huge percentage of, of the population is, is one of those things. Thank you so much, Whitney. Thank you very much. Whitney Phillips is a writer, ethnographer, and the author of This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture. You can find out more about her and her work at the show notes for today's episode at cyber.law.harvard.edu. This episode is part of a series exploring toxic spaces and online hate speech for Radio Berkman. If you have any burning questions we could explore in this space, tweet us at Radio Berkman. 
This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, with Elizabeth Gillis from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 